Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. This week, the United States observed the first anniversary of the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6, 2021. It was marked by a torrent of media coverage of the event, its causes, and what has changed since. President Joe Biden gave a speech at the Capitol where he addressed the big lie told by former President Donald Trump, which continues to serve as a motivating animus for his supporters and for his party. And so at this moment, we must decide what kind of nation are we going to be? Are we going to be a nation that accepts political violence as a norm? Are we going to be a nation where we allow partisan election officials to overturn the legally expressed will of the people? Are we going to be a nation that lives not by the light of the truth, but in the shadow of lies? We cannot allow ourselves to be that kind of nation. The way forward is to recognize the truth and to live by it. The big lie being told by the former president and many Republicans who fear his wrath is that the insurrection in this country actually took place on election day, November 3rd, 2020. Think about that. Is that what you thought? Is that what you thought when you voted that day? Taking part in an insurrection? Is that what you thought you were doing? Or did you think you were carrying out your highest duty as a citizen and voting? The former president's supporters are trying to rewrite history. They want you to see Election Day as the day of insurrection. And the riot that took place here on January 6th as a true expression of the will of the people. Can you think of a more twisted way to look at this country, to look at America? I cannot. At Tech Policy Press and on this podcast, we've covered January 6th and the ongoing threat to American democracy over the past year in a variety of ways through discussions and writing from a variety of contributors and from me. I've spent the past year reporting and researching the events of January 6th at Just Security and at Tech Policy Press and in other venues. With Ryan Goodman at Just Security, a forum on national security, foreign policy, and human rights, one project we put a lot of effort into with multiple collaborators is the January 6th Clearinghouse, which collects evidence, databases, documents, timelines, and a variety of other forms of material related to the attack on the Capitol and the big lie that precipitated it. The Clearinghouse stands at over 300 entries and has been archived by the Library of Congress. At Tech Policy Press, we've continued to put the focus on the intersection of tech and democracy by focusing on January 6th and the investigations and research surrounding it with a focus on social media platforms and other layers of the technology stack that play a role in content moderation and the spread of disinformation. Today, we're going to look at the extremist movement in the United States and how the media and technology environment plays a role in it. We're going to hear from Jared Holt, a resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab, DFR Lab, who will walk us through the findings of his latest report, After the Insurrection, How Domestic Extremists Adapted and Evolved After the January 6th U.S. Capitol Attack, which chronicles how the far right has reorganized and adjusted strategically since January 6th to position themselves to continue the assault on our democracy. And then we'll hear from Candace Rondeau and Ben Dalton, who just completed a report with an interdisciplinary group of researchers at Arizona State University and staff at New America titled Parlor and the Road to the Capitol Attack, Investigating Alt-Tech Ties to January 6th. The report looks closely at one social media platform that served as a hothouse of activity leading up to and on January 6th, and how the alternative social media ecosystem has evolved since that day. Here's Jared Holt from DFR Lab. My name is Jared Holt. I'm a resident fellow at the Digital Forensic Research Lab, where I track domestic extremism in the U.S. and how it uses the Internet. So, Jared, you've produced this report, and I understand with with three goals, you talk about providing a more granular understanding of the spectrum of radicalization that led to the events of January 6th, the state of play among far-right domestic extremist movements, and the ongoing threat of political violence in the United States. 
I want to spend a little bit of time on the second two of those uh, three goals. Um, so looking a little bit more at the state of play and the ongoing threat of, of political violence. It's January 7th. It's now more than a year since the January 6th Capitol attack. What is the state of play for our right domestic extremist movements in the United States? After the Capitol attack last year, a lot of these groups left thinking that they had accomplished something really amazing. But then as arrest, social media bans, public opinion started to form, that celebration turned to paranoia. And what we've seen the last year is a adaptation, whether it is for the sake of survival or the sake of strategy, uh, to you know, kind of accommodate that paranoia and uh, you know, respond to that scrutiny. And what we've seen kind of primarily, I think, can be summed up into two schools of thought. One is ideological. Uh, the ideology, thanks to members of Congress like Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene, prominent conservative media figures like Tucker Carlson, uh, and even the former president himself to a degree. These extremist sentiments and ideologies that even just, you know, I would say even just a couple of years ago, resided on the fringes of the conservative movement, have been pulled into the spotlight. And this has kind of been a defining feature of the Trump era, but, you know, it, it really has picked up in the last couple of years, uh, you know, going really deep into conspiracy land and that sort of thing. So the ideology is kind of clawing its way toward the mainstream with more vigor. Meanwhile, the organizing component of far-right extremism has really decentralized uh, in, in many cases. These sort of central groups like three percenter groups, Oath Keepers, Proud Boys, a lot of those groups have kind of gone back to what was you know, really kind of a prior state for them before the Trump years, or, or at least in the case of those militia groups, which was organizing on sort of local, state, regional levels. And what they're hoping to do there is kind of twofold. One, they are hoping to evade some scrutiny because there's less media, there's less resources, knowledge of what they're about in these smaller communities, especially rural communities uh, that you know, maybe exist as news deserts. And then there is, uh, you know, also kind of a strategic reason for doing this too, which is that, you know, in these areas where maybe there's not a lot of political engagement all the time, just by the sake of being involved at all, they can wield a greater amount of influence than they would currently on the national stage under a, uh, you know, democratic uh, presidential administration. So you talk a little bit in the report about multiple narratives that are exemplary of, you know, the, these sort of trends that you're describing. You talk about Ashley Babbitt and the kind of martyr narrative, the very prominent uh, narrative, I think, uh, at least in most uh, right-wing media around the idea that the people being charged uh, for their involvement in the insurrection are, are political prisoners or that they're being unjustly unjustly charged or unjustly held in some cases without being charged. That's, a, of course, a false narrative. Which of these narratives do you think has become most prominent? And can, can you walk us through sort of how, how one of these things gets formed and in the current media environment perpetuated? Yeah, I, I think sort of the most prominent one, at least in my opinion, that I've seen through you know our monitoring has been this idea that January 6 was the byproduct of essentially like a federal honeypot that the FBI kind of orchestrated and had agitators in the crowd and you know made this pro Trump crowd storm the capitol and it's pretty ridiculous that a lot of these conspiracy theories rely on purposefully misunderstanding what an FBI informant is like we know from reporting that FBI informants were in the crowd, but informant just means they talk to the FBI on occasion. It doesn't mean that, you know, they take direction from the FBI to do things. You know, kind of how this formed was really interesting because initially, you know, you would go onto Twitter feeds of pro-Trump personalities during the insurrection. And a lot of the tweets were like, all right, let's go. The Patriots are taking it back. We're doing this. And then 
once they once they got outside of their own ideological bubble, I think, and they realized how uh, the capital attack was being received, then the narrative became, well, Antifa uh, is what stormed the Capitol. Trump supporters were peaceful, but all the people doing violence, those were Antifa plants. Over time, you know, as we learned more and, and you know, you had Trump supporters going on TV or appearing before courts after being charged and being like, no, I love Trump. And yeah, I did that. Um, I, I think that narrative kind of fell apart even by their standards. So the shoe in, you know, this suggestion that it was an FBI plot instead, um, it wasn't Antifa. It was the deep state out of control. A lot of this has been aided, uh, you know, sort of the primary source material for a lot of elected officials, at least, has been this guy named Darren Beatty, who left the White House, uh, the Trump White House, in, I believe, 2017, after CNN wrote a story about uh, how he had spoken at a conference alongside several uh, you know, prominent white nationalist figures. And uh, he runs this little news thing called Revolver News now, and it's just like InfoWars, Alex Jones, tier conspiracy theorizing um but you've had people like matt gates and paul gosar uh read these articles into the congressional record and uh you know it's uh, I, I it's hard to understate the degree that you know congressional figures or republican power players are using their positions to take this kind of stuff from these unsavory figures and turn it into mainstream conservative narratives and i think that's really alarming you mentioned in particular the role of Tucker Carlson. Could we pause on that for a moment? It's been extraordinary just to watch him create such well-produced garbage about January 6th. I just want to kind of pause on his role. Tucker Carlson's been doing this for years. I remember one of the, like, I, I think the moment where it really set in as I wrote this article for Right Wing Watch, which I worked at at the time. I believe it was like 2018 or 19 and white nationalists were going gangbusters again over these conspiracy theories that a white genocide was happening in South Africa, which these have existed in white nationalist circles, these conspiracy theories ever since the ending of apartheid and the desegregation of South Africa. It found its way from far-right influencer to far-right influencer, eventually to Tucker Carlson. And then, you know, lo and behold, Trump was watching Tucker Carlson and tweeted out this thing, you know, trying to get the State Department at the time to look into it. And, you know, needless to say, it was just nonsense, white nationalist conspiracy theory. But, you know, I, I think that moment kind of demonstrated what he's been doing for a long time, which is taking these things from the recesses of the extreme right, mainstreaming them and getting them in front of people that actually have influence or, or you know, massive audiences. And since January 6th, Tucker Carlson has continued that trend. Um, you know, I, I think maybe most notably putting together a quote unquote documentary series about January 6th, uh, you know, kind of advancing a lot of these same narratives that I just talked about, which is that the FBI basically set up uh, January 6th to fail in the way that it did, and that everybody involved is actually innocent, and the real, you know, criminal is, is the deep state Joe Biden administration. In the final part of the report, you get on to uh, what's happening now with regard to the far-right movements. You've brought this up already. Um, the idea that things are decentralizing, focusing on local. You talk a little bit about how Steve Bannon is advocating for individuals to pursue positions in, in, in key precincts and in uh, key states around the country. Can you talk about where things are headed? And, and do you see this as, as a sort of extension of the insurrectionist movement on January 6th? I mean, I definitely see it as an extension, even though we don't have people, at least for now, um, you know, storming into the state houses and, and you know, destroying everything and, and trying to halt legislative processes. The ideological component is still there. And I don't really have to speculate on what the strategy is here because people like Steve Bannon have been so explicit on it. 
you know, people like Bannon and the people that listen to him and politicians who are aligned with him believe that the reason January 6th even happened was because there were all of these failures on the state level, on the local level. And what they view as failures is just basic democratic processes, which is votes being certified and passed up the chain. So the strategy that they have uh, is very much like the precinct strategy the religious right used to ascend to power in a very institutional way, which is to seek positions on things like school boards and, more importantly, election boards, uh, Republican precincts. You know, a lot of these positions are not high-profile positions. You know, when you go to vote in midterms or a general, they're on like the third or fourth page of the voting packet. Uh, you maybe know the names, you probably see the letters and vote accordingly. Uh, you know, Democrat or Republican, that's how most of that tends to go a lot of the time. So they're trying to kind of shore up wins in these positions, which is a, I mean, legitimate form of political strategy and organizing. But their explicitly stated goal, should they get those positions, is not to fulfill them. It's not to get in these roles and then act and you know do the unglamorous work of election certification and and conduct it is you know intentionally to get in the role and then just use their positions to gunk up the whole process so it's using the democratic process to get inside institutions for an explicitly anti-democratic goal um which is a bit concerning because the way you push back on that you kind of you know, you, you can't stop people from running for these positions. You know, I, I guess the best hope is to just identify where this is happening and run other people instead who, you know, Democrat, Republican, it doesn't matter, but, you know, at least people that have these basic commitments to democracy in the United States. So you talk about the media ecosystem and the arrival of a kind of notion of a parallel society. I was particularly interested in your view on how this kind of alternative media and technology ecosystem that, that appears to be emerging and that we're seeing uh, attract investment, uh, whether it is uh, today, Parler apparently raising another $20 million in funding, Donald Trump's own uh, effort, which apparently has raised uh, or has a valuation, I should say, of, of more than a billion dollars. How has this sort of media and technology ecosystem evolved and what role does that play? It's evolved like even before the capital attack, this existed, this ecosystem existed. But I think, you know, after the capital attack and, you know, so many people getting suspended from mainstream platforms, I think, like, for example, Twitter said, by the middle of last year, they had suspended more than 100,000 QAnon accounts. So there were all of these suspensions, um, you know, very notably, Donald Trump was suspended from many platforms. And that really, you know, from what I could see, accelerated the push into this environment. And some of these platforms exist as ideological projects like Parler and Gab. Some uh, are chosen seemingly for convenience, like Telegram. You know, that being a internationally used app with plenty of legitimate purposes uh, and then plenty of illegitimate purposes, like any major, major product like that. Um, and then, of course, they always like try to get back on the mainstream ones because even the best alternative ones can't hold a candle to a Facebook or a YouTube. But we've really seen this ecosystem kind of develop a bit further, attract some more funding, certainly attract some more users. And I think it's just kind of intensifying the, the polarization and sort of the radicalization process of people, because on a lot of these alternative platforms, you know, really, at least in the far right political sense, that push started after Unite the Right in Charlottesville in 2017, uh, when white nationalists and neo-Nazis got banned uh, from a lot of major social media platforms. A lot of them sought out alternative platforms, uh, platforms like Gab shot up right afterward to, you know, offer digital safe haven for these folks. So, you know, extremists have the home field advantage on a lot of these platforms. And when larger audiences of more like, quote, 
I, I guess you call it like normie audiences are going there. It increases the the potential for them to get radicalized by an echo chamber that's been churning hate long before they got there. And I think it also kind of deepens what we've seen more and more in the past years, which is just kind of these parallel tracks that the United States news environment is on. So if you're a consumer of hyper-partisan media, whether that is left or right, there's a good chance that you will almost never encounter uh, you know, information from the other side or information that contradicts your worldview, um, you know, if, if not just highlighted by your own kind of media bubble for mockery or, or pushback or et cetera. So, you know, that exists already on major platforms like Facebook. And then when you move it to an alternative platform, that is just another layer of separation. And it's just creating these hyper intense echo chambers. So I want to ask you just a couple of last questions. Um, one is about any predictions you have, where things might be headed over the next year or two. Uh, what are the trend lines that you feel like you can see the, the most uh, prominently? I think we're going to continue to see the trends that we saw last year by all traditional measures. Uh, you know, these strategies were cooked up as a way of bouncing back after the Capitol riot blowback and from what we can tell, it's, uh, it's worked well enough so far. So I, I think we'll see a lot of these same trends continue. When Trump unveils his uh, social media platform, and whenever that may be, I think that will shake up the landscape because there will be a mad dash to this new platform and a, a race to establish influence on that platform. So I'll be looking for that. And, uh, you know, this local strategy has been going on over the course of the last year. A lot of people have been able to successfully obtain these positions that they've been seeking in the electoral process. And I think 2022 is going to show us kind of the uh, like pilot episode of what the consequences of that are. If we don't figure this out soon, and, and depending on how that pilot goes, I think that could have even more severe ramifications in 2024. Jared, were you at the Capitol on January 6th? I was not. I had plans to go. Um, and then I started seeing some video from the ground and I was like, oh, no, all of my worst uh, <laughs> my worst worries about what was going to happen today are happening. So maybe I should stay home and just document everything that I can. So you have been covering this stuff for years, um, and I know that it has a, a corrosive impact on the individuals that have to, to look at it so deeply. How do you kind of, uh, I don't know. Keep yourself going. I know that you're target of threats that in that you deal with some some fairly uh, negative content on a regular basis. Any personal reflections this year since the insurrection? I've got a great and supportive partner, a cute dog. I play some guitar, I do some photography. Yeah, you know, just having support there. You know, the DFR lab is really good about having my back on stuff when things get choppy. So having some support there, and then also I think just having creative outlets to, you know, take that energy or or take whatever you're feeling and just turn it into, you know, it doesn't even have to be anything. It doesn't have to be, you know, like a studio soundtrack or or something. It, you know, just to get it out on the guitar and then, you know, go make dinner and watch some TV and unwind or something. You know, that's that goes a long way. Just being able to get it out of your system in a way that you know, isn't further corrosive to the people around you or, or your environment or yourself is uh, crucial. And I, I wasn't always really good at that. That was something I kind of had to learn how to do and, and figure out how, what that looked like for myself. But now I, I feel like, at least for myself, I, I think I've figured out at least a rough formula. Well, I wish you health in the new year and uh, look forward to talking to you again about these matters in the future. Same to you, Justin. If you are enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press podcast to find a link to subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, join our newsletter.
In their new report, Parler and the Road to the Capitol Attack, Investigating Alt-Tech Ties to January 6th, researchers from Arizona State University and staff at New America write that, quote, the centrality of digital data and the narrative January 6th implicates social media and tech companies across the board. But it is not coincidental that the political unrest leading up to the assault on Congress took place against a backdrop of explosive growth in the so-called alternative tech or alt-tech movement that sprang up from the right during Trump's presidency, unquote. In this podcast, we've covered the role that social media platforms like Facebook played in the insurrection, and indeed this week, a new report from the Washington Post and ProPublica puts another nail in that company's absurd argument, diminishing its responsibility. But the role of much smaller platforms like Parler and the Donald must be understood, particularly as so much investment is being made at the moment to build an alternative tech ecosystem where far-right speech can thrive unchecked. Former President Trump himself has invested in a new venture, Truth Social, that has raised substantial funds through a SPAC deal that is now under investigation by the Securities and Exchange Commission. On January 6th, I had the opportunity to join two of the authors of the New America Report on a webinar marking the anniversary and to speak to them for this podcast. Here's Candace Rondeau and Ben Dalton. I'm Candace Rondeau. I'm director of the Future Frontlines program at New America and a professor of practice at Arizona State University. And my name is Ben Dalton. I am an open source fellow with the Future Frontlines program at New America. So I thank you both for joining me today. And I know that you set out with this report to answer a a set of questions. Um, You talk about a persistent question that remains unanswered um, after January 6th and with regard to the role of of social media uh, and technology platforms. How much did niche platforms like Parler and their interplay with Main Street platforms contribute to the January 6th siege and the rise of extremism in the country. So Candace, can you tell us how you set out to answer that question? It was pretty apparent right after Amazon, Apple, and Google shut down Parler that um, at least those companies were fairly convinced that it was a contributing factor in the violence that occurred on January 6th. And, you know, there had been a study uh, that was released actually very shortly after the attack by some NYU researchers, uh, Max Aliopoulos and uh, Emmy Benavisi and a whole bunch of other folks uh, who were part of a research consortium. So we were aware that this large data set, public data set from Parler was out there, uh, that, you know, that at least a first blush evaluation had been done um, by those researchers. But then literally within days afterwards, uh, a hacktivist by the name of Donk Emby, at least using that handle on Twitter, released all this uh, additional public data uh, including videos and images and metadata. Uh, and we saw that as an opportunity to really tease out from the actual parlor platform itself, at least 1.0 version, exactly how it operated. You, you needed to understand how it operated first. So that was one of our, you know, kind of sub questions was, well, what is the model exactly? Um, and then, and then you, you know, then you could have a sense of, well, how is it interacting with other platforms? Uh, and the reason we wanted to ask this question is because, you know, there were, had been so many public statements, and then, of course, the action uh, by the big tech companies against Parler certainly indicated that there was this idea that somehow Parler was more responsible than Facebook or Twitter. Um, and our question was, well, how would you know? How would you quantify that or qualify that? You know, it's a big task to take on a whole platform and try to understand it. And, you know, it's important to say the data that we had, while it was extremely, you know, big, right, uh, we, had, we had lots of volumes of, of posts and so forth. We can't say it was complete, right? So there's some limitations on the data. We don't know exactly how it was collected, even though um, I think the Aliopolis data set is, they made clear what their methodology was. Um, it's not entirely clear, you know, what the other hacktivists did in order to get, grab all that stuff. So just putting those caveats out there, um, that there were some limitations of the data and we're aware of that. But we... I think what we learned is that, you know, Parler was essentially a platform that didn't have a ton of activity before the election cycle, the 2020 election cycle. Uh, I mean, it's not to say that there were no users, there were users, and there was a gradual uptick, um, but there were kind of two big points in Parler's, you know, Parler 1.0's brief history, uh, where you see spikes in user join dates, and that was in around uh, 2019, summer of 2019, when the Mueller investigation was wrapping up uh, into uh, Russian interference elections of 2016. And then um, right around the 
May, June time, timeline of 2020, um, which coincided with a number of different trends, including uh, you know, the eruption of unrest around the Black Lives Matter movement and protests across the country, um, and then counter protests, as well as also an uptick in COVID protests. So one big thing, we, our big takeaway just from that observation is um, this was a platform that might have very easily failed, uh, or at least uh, might have very easily just sort of been a sidebar in a larger scheme of things when it comes to sort of election disinformation. Um, but it, it really did seem like um, there was some sort of coordinated uh, pattern of, uh, of, of push dates for users to join. The second takeaway is that this was a platform where, you know, disinformation ran rife, uh, where users, you know, felt compelled to join because they identified this idea that they had been somehow censored or deplatformed, and perhaps they had been. There was a clear pattern of migration during the period when Facebook and Twitter and other mainstream platforms were cracking down on certain types of disinformation, particularly around QAnon. Uh, and, you know, Parler is flooded with QAnon content, uh, and you really see that very visibly. Um, I think the other things <laughs> that we kind of looked at were just sort of how influencers and objectors and those the congressional members uh, who objected in, in, uh, on January 6th to the certification results. Um, we tried to kind of slice and dice um, by looking at you know, different categories of types of users. What we found was basically, you know, folks close to Trump who had parlor accounts, you know, big, big time surrogates, you know, your Lynn Powell's and I'm sorry, your uh, Lynn Wood and Michael Flynn and Ivanka Trump, those folks, they had an outsized influence on the platform. Although so elected officials like Nunes, you know, Paul Gosar, Ted Cruz, um, they had parlor accounts. And because of the way the platform rewards certain types of influencers on the platform, uh, you know, they really had an outsized influence on the debate uh, ongoing. Unusual for a platform with actually so users, 15 million compared to, let's say, billions. Uh, for Facebook, relatively speaking, is pretty small, right? But there's this kind of hothouse effect just because of the design elements on the platform. So I want to talk a little bit about that idea of the hothouse effect as opposed to the, you know, the echo chamber, because I think most people always think of this platform or platforms like it, like the Donald.win as, as, a, as a place that's in, in an echo chamber. But certainly after the election, something very different was going on. I do just want to say, just from my own review of parlor content, I mean, it, for the listener that may not have spent so much time trudging through this stuff in the same way that you have, it is extraordinary the extent to which parlor was just about Donald Trump. I don't know if you'd agree with that characterization. Oh, 100%. 100%. But, um, there's really nothing else being discussed there, um, which is kind of wild. You know, I mean, there were obviously there were posts and, and commentary that did not expressly discuss Donald Trump, but he was the kind of motivating animus behind all of, of the activity. Yeah, right. I mean, so that's also like a tremendous difference, right? I, you couldn't even say that necessarily about Gab, although that bears testing, right? Um, I mean, I think Gab probably has a little bit more diversity. We won't talk about sort of all the content there, but just my suspicion is what's what, you know, about Parler is, you know, we did do the topic modeling and of course, Trump is at the center, right? Like you're, you're quite right about that. But then there's also this kind of sense that there's an apocalyptic crisis underway, right? And, you know, and a sense that democracy in the American way is, or is not wrong. <laughs> it just, it sort of happens to be for different reasons, right? So yeah, Trump is very pre prevalent. Yeah, you know, just Trump, the topic of Trump, you know, how he is righted or wronged or, uh, you know, that's really key. And just to add to that, there was quite a bit of automatic or automated activity on Parler. Um, so some of the most active counts were, you know, essentially just sort of pushing out um, article feeds like from the uh, the Epic Times, the the pro Trump uh, newspaper. And actually, there was a there was an account that would automatically post a, as a comment on every new user who joined basically the information for like signing up to volunteer for the Trump campaign. The yeah, the, the penetration of the of the campaign is really evident there. And, uh, and just to further underscore that point, we, we as Candace mentioned, there was like sort of spikes of activity surrounding uh, like key events throughout the campaign. 
and actually the the peak of activity on the platform, both in terms of post activity and uh, join uh, join activity, happened the week after that Joe Biden was projected to win, and it surrounded that that first really big stop the steal uh, protest that that was organized in November. And, it, you know, that conversation dominated the platform to such an extent that the, the overall peak in, in all parlor 1.0 activity during the entirety of its existence until it was shut down in January basically coincided with the peak of stop the steal messaging on the platform. So the, the two almost became one in a sense. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the, the role of, of those elites. And, and Candace, you mentioned Ivanka Trump, you mentioned Mike Flynn, others, uh, Sidney Powell, Lynn Wood. And I, and I do understand that several of those elites were quite literally syndicating posts from other places. I believe that's correct. You know, essentially kind of feeding uh, Parler in, in, in the way that they were doing with perhaps their Facebook pages or Twitter accounts. Um, but some were also, I think of Paul Gosar here, kind of having an alternative uh, personality uh, on Parler that was perhaps different from what they were doing on on the mainstream social platforms. Did you see that dynamic play out? Oh, yeah. I mean, what was really, I think, very striking, you know, our colleague, uh, Sean Walker, who really kind of led the charge on a lot of the content analysis, uh, and in particular looked at the objectors, you know, he found, you know, there's really substantial difference. We saw 46, ultimately we found 46 elected officials who had accounts um, on Parler it's kind of hard because some some folks use obviously different handles or, you know, it's, it's difficult to service them all. Um, but of the 147 elected officials who raised objections, we found 46. And it was like night and day. What they said on Twitter vis-a-vis the elections uh, or vis-a-vis Trump was quite different. In, and in fact, you know, the kind of inveighing against Biden was much more strident on Parler. And, and the spread of disinformation was much more obvious, blatant, and and the language is very strong, right? So uh, it was sort of almost like a you know Dr. Jekyll, uh, Mr. Hyde kind of scenario. I'm thinking in particular of a post uh, from Paul Gosar that appeared to vaunt the protesters or the insurrectionists as they were climbing uh, the walls at the Capitol that he posted on Parler, which was of course quite different from posts uh, he was making on other platforms. Maybe stepping back from that as a kind of idea, you did this study to look at the alt tech ecosystem to think about Parler's role, but also to try to, as I understand it, evaluate um, the broader scenario, the broader situation. What did this look at Parler tell you about that alt tech ecosystem, how it works, where it's headed? One thing that I think is interesting that came out of the study is that you have to wonder, you know, if a platform like Parler is so focused just by the way the sort of design elements kind of come together, everything from like who gets to be an influencer, who gets a badge, who gets ad revenues, you know, how you monetize, right? If the design elements combine to, in a way that centers really on the charismatic you know, demagogic figure uh, of an individual like Trump, is it a viable model in the long term? I would argue probably not. And in in a way, we'll have to we'll have to see what Parler 2.0, right? Like how that bears out. Let's just say Trump runs in 2024. Then we can imagine that Parler remains viable for quite some time, right? Which in a way suggests that this was the motivation, the kind of behind the platform's foundation in the first place, because we know, of course. Uh, the backers of the platform, uh, Rebecca Mercer uh, and a couple of other conservatives who are behind the trust that originally founded Parler, you know, had a certain objective in mind in terms of supporting uh, this type of candidate. So, but then the question is, if Trump doesn't win, right, in a 2020, imagine 2024 scenario, and yet the whole kind of dynamic of the Parler platform for years then has been built around this kind of magnetism uh, and around the influential orbit of his surrogates online. Will Parler be stale then? Like, what? who will do stuff on Parler? What will it be useful for? There is no future charismatic, you know, demagogic GOP principle uh, or 
other type of you know libertarian far right principle that you can build an advertising model around, then what do you got? And I think that's a, you know that raises questions about similar platforms like Getter. Uh, you know, I I would like to see will they be able to be as successful? Uh, raises questions about Truth Social and Trump's you know proposed uh, social media platform, which is now in the middle of this uh, review. Is this a viable long term model? If the whole platform essentially, you know, builds around the influence of a relatively small group of people who have a pretty narrow audience, it's a big audience relative to like sort of the millions of Americans out there, but it's still a narrow audience. I think it's such a key question. You know, when you think about Gab, Truth Social, Parler, Getter, uh, and other projects in in that regard. The ones that seem to believe that there is a real market opportunity, um, and and clearly true social, you know, we've seen some of the material that's come out of that. Parlor seems to be very much, um, you know, of that mind, and we've seen some of the material from places like Gab and Gitter, where they all seem to describe, you know, this idea that listen, people are being censored on the main social platforms. That is going to increasingly drive an appetite among consumers to move their activity to alternative platforms that are uh, more free speech friendly in their way of thinking about uh, free speech, and that that is going to create a market. It just feels to me like there's there's a significant reason to have the same suspicions that you do, which is that that market may not be big enough, ultimately, in terms of the number of people. And I suspect that advertisers uh, will have quite a lot of reservations about spending their dollars in those environments. Right. I mean, so it raises a couple of other additional sort of policy questions and kind of movement questions. When we think about, you know, tech transparency and, you know, the need for better regulation, um, all these questions around Section 230 that, of course, we're a little bit over-focused on. I do wonder also... So if there if it turns out to be a limited market, how will we know that exactly, right? I mean, will we see advertisers saying, you know what, we're good. We're going to stick with Twitter and Facebook uh, and YouTube. We don't really get a lot of mileage out of this anyway. And I haven't actually seen a lot of evaluations. I mean, a good, I think a great avenue of research is just what are the business models? I know that Megan Squire, uh, you know, has been doing a lot of that work looking at kind of the monetization of you know these far right platforms and how exactly it works. But I think there's there's lots of opportunity there's to just look at the advertising online digital advertising market generally and the, what are the economics really you know what are the baseline bottom line numbers that advertisers gain from interacting with these platforms. And the second question is we know that there's kind of this very interesting kind of cottage industry of like new communications devices and other types of services that are now being provided on some of these platforms, uh, you know, phone, you know, cell phones that are for Christians and, you know, and constitutional patriots and so forth and so on. So you have to wonder again, like in a networked communication system with very limited networked nodes, right? Will the technology actually be viable? Then the second question is then will, will there be revenues generated from that model in the long term. And I also kind of think it raises some even bigger questions around if you're the type of platform that doesn't sell your users' data to third parties, there's obviously a different monetization scheme going on, which means that Congress really could regulate that quite simply. Is it okay you know, for elected officials or people running for Congress or elected office to monetize in that way, how does that fit and square with campaign finance laws, for instance? What portion of how, what do we know about that? I mean, those are just, you know, a couple of examples, but I do think that um, one of the, the gifts of the parlor shutdown and the sort of the opening of the research on, you know, one point version has been that now you can actually sort of say, here's a snapshot of this one platform that had this one business model. Um, and it's it's completely knowable, or at least it's mostly knowable, what the impact was of their of their schema, right, for raising revenue. And Congress has to ask questions about that. They should ask questions about that. Ben, anything to add there? 
I mean, yeah, we see them building like not just an alternative social media ecosystem, but basically an entirely alternate internet. You have people like Nicholas Fuente setting up like a new streaming service. You had, you know, Epic, which was recently hacked, uh, setting up an entirely different sort of registration system. You see almost like an ideological diverging of the internet economy. I guess my question, big picture, and this is one one of the last I'll put to you, is does this create a kind of mega echo chamber or mega echo chamber hothouse, as you say? Is it easier in some ways to contain the the anti democratic forces that that may exist in that hothouse, if in fact it is so separated from mainstream platforms, from mainstream tech, um, or do you think it? It makes it more potent. Do you have a sense of that? Or is is that really the open question? So the reason we kind of arrived at this idea that we're not really looking at an echo chamber, but rather a hothouse, right? So if we think of an echo chamber, it's sort of like things are bouncing around inside some container, right? And it's sort of like a bunch of noise drowning out uh, sort of the logic of, of a signal. But the signal was really loud on Parler because it wasn't a bunch of noise. It was all one signal. And there's a symbiotic relationship. You cannot, it's the internet. These platforms do interact with each other because people have multiple identities across multiple platforms. And, you know, as we just you know pointed out with uh, some of the objectors, I mean, they get one thing on Twitter, another thing on Parler. Uh, so, and there's an extremely symbiotic relationship between them, right? So the question is then not so much, is this an echo chamber? Can you wall it off? You can't wall it off. Um, it does have an impact. It will continue to have an impact on the national conversation about uses of political violence and when that is normal and okay. Because that's really, we won't be able to separate the platform from the ongoing national conversation about that, which is going to go on probably for decades, very likely. I mean, this is a generational conflict over the future of democracy in the United States. And it involves everything from you know redistricting and gerrymandering to you know, access to you know the ballot box, uh, to qualifications for candidates, to you know uh, counting and recounting audits, you name it. It's a huge, huge tsunami of real chaos in our electoral system, at least in terms of how the American public is perceiving it. And those distortions and those misperceptions that are out there right now are very much fed by by the ecosystem as a whole. Right, not just one platform by itself, uh, and and I think actually nobody is helped by folks like Sheryl Sandberg pointing at Parler Gap and saying no, they're more responsible. In fact, really, the responsibility is is equal on a lot of different levels, simply because all of them adopt different business models that tend to target individuals based on you know a psychological profile uh, that they are safeguarding. That's part of their business model. Right. Um, that is what advertisers bank on them uh, to have to have a lock on. So I, I, I do think it's a fool's errand in a way to kind of you know, think, well, we can they're on the fringe. They're so fringe that they don't matter. Clearly, they matter. Yeah. And just to add to that, you know, it's not like the people who are on Parler were not also on more mainstream social media. And when we when we talk about a hothouse, like part of what the way that I imagine that is that you know it's sort of messaging practice. You'd bring conversations in there from you know that are happening more broadly across the internet, and they become more pointed, they become more sort of radical, and eventually they leak back out. Um, I saw this in particular. I spent a lot of time for this report looking at um, some of the people who were indicted, arrested, and, and charged for their role on January sixth, and you know many of them maintained multiple accounts across Parler. Gab, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Telegram, you have it. And they would reserve their most sort of pointed commentary, their their most sort of like, you know, risky or, you know, in, in some cases, actively threatening language for Parler. Um, and then they would tone it down a little bit for places like Facebook and Twitter, uh, lest they get banned. Uh, but still, the messaging was consistent across all of it, right? So it is as, as just as kind of said, the, the entire thing is linked, it would be a mistake to, to assume that Parler is just sort of like doing its own thing off in the corner. So we'll see how uh, these things play out over the course of the 2022 cycle and going into the next presidential cycle, which is frighteningly upon us. What will you all work on next? Well, we're going to still dig. I mean, we, we surfaced some other trends uh, that made us wonder more about, you know, what could we learn, for instance, from 
the geocoded video data. So we're going to try and take a look at some of the top cities uh, where there was a lot of clustering to see, if, one, just look at the content. You may remember this, but, you know, when Parler first came out, there, were all, there was all this coverage about how there was a lot of porn, uh, you know, on the platform. We're a little bit nervous about that, but, <laughs> but in any case, you know, we suspect that, in fact, if we could find automated patterns, um, they would most likely be easily accessible and analyzable with this geocoded video data. And I think it's going to tell us an, a very interesting story uh, at a very localized level about sort of what was going on, um, let's say, in a place like St. Louis or, you know, Phoenix um, that was driving people and what was driving the conversation. I think we'll be able to lock that down a little bit more. Ben can talk a little bit about uh, some of the things that we want to do with the indictees as well. I think we're going to dig a little bit deeper into into some of these indictees, in particular, some of the, the folks who are named in uh, the D.C., the District of Columbia lawsuit against the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers, get a better sense of, you know, their online networks leading up to January 6th and, and how they spilled over into their their offline organizing. Um, and we're also thinking of, of doing a little bit of a, of a dig on those uh, objectors, the, con- the congressional members who objected to the certification, um, basically do a similar kind of open source investigation on them. And one thing that I'm in particularly interested in, in exploring is links to some of the nonprofits that have sprung up um, in, in the last year or two to sort of advance this agenda, but are cloaking it in a little bit more of a, a you know friendly, approachable face. And the last thing I'll say is the Donald wins is something that's also on our agenda. Um, as you know, Justin, we have a research consortium that, of course, you're part of uh, <laughs> that uh, with a lot of different researchers. And, and we, I think we had, we had a great uh, meeting about that back in December. And, and one of the researchers presented on the ones. And I think we I think we're pretty incentivized to kind of go after that and try and understand the architecture of, of that particular platform. Well, I do know that the the data set of parlor posts uh, that that you referenced that NYU and SMAT and and a variety of other collaborators put put forward did contain a, a warning that the content would be toxic, racist, hateful, and overall disturbing. So I know the two of you will unfortunately have to trudge through a lot of that uh, as you continue your work. And I I thank you for that, and I I wish you health in this new year. Thank you. Thanks. That's it for this week's episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to our panelists. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.